Well, a little uh, quick survey in the room. How many of you would lift your hand and self-identify as a history buff? Anybody big fans of history? Yeah, me too. My hand's raised. So in school, uh, I was terrible at math. I was terrible at science. I was terrible at English. But history, I was okay at history. I was excellent at lunch and recess, those things. But uh, history was absolutely my favorite subject in school. And uh, for fans of history, uh, what you know is this, if you are, is that it's very nuanced. So different people like different facets of history, different time periods of history, different genres of history. But one of the areas of history uh, that draws a large fan base is grouped around military history. Uh, Military history is so popular uh, that for some folks, if they zero in on the Civil War, uh, they participate in reenactments. Uh, Some people are experts and watch all the documentaries on the Vietnam War. But another area that's incredibly popular is history connected to World War II. And I think World War II history is popular for several reasons. Number one, there is a small and rapidly shrinking part of the population that is still alive uh, who lived through that period. And so there's a living actual connection for folks who might have lived through that. Again, that population is uh, rapidly fading, but there's still a connection to the past. Uh, It's popular because the profound impact on how it shaped world history, even still uh, to this day, it's because it's the last uh, major world war, we hope, amen? Uh, And then uh, lastly, it's also popular, I think, because it produced some incredibly notable characters of history, and certainly not the least of them uh, was Sir Winston Churchill. Uh, Churchill was a very controversial uh, leader during that time, and rightfully so. He's leading a nation and uh, during the middle of a world war. He had to leave boldly and decisively. He's uh, against the evil, what they call the Axis powers, and so certainly there was tension there. He's leading there, but also uh, he in- endured an incredible uh, amount of criticism uh, from his own countrymen, uh, criticizing how he led uh, in the war. And isn't that the way the world is? We're experts at criticizing people from far away in something we have personally never done. I'm always incredibly encouraged uh, when a person who's never served on the zoning board has all the world government problems fixed out. That's encouraging to me, right? And so Churchill uh, was criticized from without. He was criticized from within. And here's the reality. If you're going to lead on any level, you're going to endure criticism. It doesn't matter if you're leading your family a company, a discussion, or even a Girl Scout troop, if you're going to lead, then you are going to be criticized. Someone much wiser than me said this, if you want everyone to like you, go sell ice cream, right? And so, uh, and I love what Churchill said about leadership and criticism. Listen to what Churchill said. He said, you have enemies? Good. That means you stood up for something or someone in your lifetime. And if you are here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then your willingness to lovingly but firmly stand up for Christ and his cause in the world amongst us is going to endure criticism on our behalf. And so how do we respond to that criticism in a way that glorifies God? Well, here's the good news. Scripture is going to tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So let me invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, for a message entitled, How to Deal with Haters. So, as you're turning there, your Bible, your devices, I want you to read uh, one commentator's thoughts regarding the importance of chapter 10 uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. 
He says it could be argued and quite possible that chapter 10 is the high point of the book. And the main thing Paul seeks to say through the Corinthians in this letter, which is this. Spiritual power flows through surprising channels. Paul speaks in this chapter of tremendous spiritual strength using military imagery. And yet he goes on to acknowledge how outwardly unimpressive and even ridiculous he's made out to be by his opposers. But both are generally true in the kingdom of God. Listen to this. God's divine strength interlocks with human weakness. And so not only is this an incredibly practical thing to walk through because we're all going to endure criticism uh, in our lives, uh, but this commentator argues this, this is an incredibly significant passage in the entire book of 2 Corinthians that we have been studying together now for uh, a few months. And so to get us started today, let's look at verses 1 through 6 as we work our way through this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, let's remind ourselves of the context of what Paul's writing in here in 2 Corinthians that we've been uh, walking through. Paul was uh, opposed by a group of false teachers who were known as the super apostles. And the reason that they kind of came to be known by that term is not because their teaching was great, their teaching was not true. It's because they were so uh, outwardly impressive. As young people might say, they had swag, right? And Paul is just the opposite. Uh, History tells this about Paul, not a looker, all right? Uh, There's one recorded source in history from the second century, it's called the Acts of Paul, that described to us Paul's physical appearance. Now contrast this to the super apostles who were impressive on the outside. And here's what that uh, recording says. It says, Paul was a, a man of middling size and his hair was scanty. <laughs> his legs were a little crooked and his knees were far apart. He had large eyes and his eyebrows met and his nose was somewhat long. So let me give you a paraphrase of what he's saying there. Paul was a ball-headed, bow-legged, short man with a big nose and an unbroken eyebrow that lay across his forehead like a dead caterpillar. That's what Paul looked like. Now, we don't know, because this is recorded like 100 years after Paul died, so, so we're not totally sure if this guy's uh, assessment of Paul's appearance was uh, physically exactly accurate. But here's what we do know. It does not contradict how Paul's critics described him in chapter uh, 10, verse 10, uh, right here. Listen to this flattery in verse 10. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Here's, listen, Paul's the guy that upon setting you up with a blind date with him, your friend says, you're going to like this guy. He's got a great personality, right? That's Paul. 
So contrast that to these super apostles, they're incredibly impressive, they're influential. Uh, here's Paul, a guy who's not incredibly impressive, but, but what a reality check to drive home the truth that in our human inadequacies, God's strength is unleashed. You see, most of us, if we're honest, seek to suppress or hide or manage our insecurities and our weaknesses. But what we're going to learn is this, when we study Scripture, is it's through those very things, those are the conduits through which God's power is released in our lives. And so, Paul's teaching that reality here, and he's also setting us on the path of being free from a pattern of responding sinfully when criticism comes our way, like it did Paul's way unfairly, all right? So here's what I want you to see in the text. Two ways to glorify God in dealing with criticism. Number one, you should train for it on the front end. One of the things that I've observed in my own life is that the time uh, to come up with a game plan on how to respond to criticism in a Christ-honoring way uh, is not uh, when it happens, right? Because when it happens, and if it's severe enough, and I think it's unfair enough, then in that moment in my flesh, my immediate desire and temptation is not to spawn rightly to criticism in a way that glorifies God. My immediate temptation is to win. Amen? I want to prove to the critic that not only is your criticism unfounded by you know, unleashing my resume, but I also want to remind them that because of all their faults, they're not in a place to criticize anyone, and that is my natural uh, temptation. And if we're honest, we'd admit that this statement is true. Listen to this statement that I read this week on criticism. So insightful. Here's what it said. Criticism is the disapproval of people. Now listen to this. Not for having faults but for having faults different from your own. Have you noticed this? We're incredibly forgiving with people who have the same faults that we have. If you lose your temper, you know someone else who loses their temper, you say, oh, don't mind them, they say things they don't mean. If you are a person who's critical in speech and someone else is harsh in their speech, you just say, oh, that's just how they are. I've known them for a long time. But when someone has faults that are different from ours, listen, uh, it is a brutal criticism that comes when someone's faults are different uh, than ours. Now, here's the reality. If you've yet to learn this or not, let me offer an encouraging word. You have very little uh, control over the criticism you're going to receive uh, in your life. That's the bad news. The question is not if you'll be criticized. The question is by whom and for what. And so if that's true, and it is, we should actively daily be seeking to respond, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that when criticism comes, we don't have to respond in the flesh. We don't have to lash back out of them. We don't have to respond out of overwhelming uh, insecurity. We can respond in a way that glorifies God, right? So if you're listening, say amen. Let me share a phrase with you we've shared often here over the years. We need to be training, not trying. We need to be living a spirit-filled life. We need to make sure the gospel's conforming us to the character of Christ. Because when criticism happens, depending on what it is and who it's from and what it's for, that you can try as hard as you want to respond rightly, but over time, your willpower will wear down. If you catch me on the wrong day, my willpower is not going to be enough. My response to criticism should flow out of this spirit-filled life that God is actively conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. And when I'm criticized, when I'm crushed with criticism, Christ should seep out of me. 
Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Now, just in case you think Paul's a doormat, here's what Paul's saying. Paul says, hey, I have no problem writing letters of correction. They know that by now. He says, hey, I have no problem when I get there of setting the record straight for those who've been deceived and influenced by these super apostles. But notice what also Paul says. Paul says, I not only want to correct the wrongs against my ministry, uh, I also uh, want to do it in love. Paul says, I'm not just interested in getting the facts straight. Paul said, I want to be right with God and with you in the approach in which I do that. Now, how do I know that? Because listen to the words used to describe not the content of his response, but rather the tone of his response. He said, I want to respond how? Meekness, gentleness, humility. Can we just be honest that in this cultural moment we're living in, if we're honest, meekness has come to the place where it's viewed as a deficit. I've been grieved several times over the years. I've heard Christian leaders, as the culture wars have ramped up, I've heard Christian leaders say, hey, uh, the ways of Christ are no longer going to cut it when navigating the world around us in this toxic environment. Now listen, if the ways of Christ don't cut it, let's all go home and sleep in. Amen? And so we're in this moment where meekness and gentleness are viewed as weaknesses, not as strengths. And so Paul says, hey, I have no problem being bold. That's what he's saying in verse 2. I have no problem writing correction. I have no problem correcting these charges against my uh, ministry. But I not only want to be right, I want to stay right with you and with the Lord in the tone and way which I respond. Gentleness, meekness, and humility. Pastor and author Dane Orland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly in the last few years. And listen to just a little excerpt from his book. He said, Paul appeals to the meekness and gentleness of Christ and 2 Corinthians 10.1. This is a striking appeal in light of how forcefully he must deal with the beguiling tactics of opponents undermining his ministry here. But in this appeal, he is drawing our minds to the very heart of Christ. The only time in all four Gospels where Jesus discusses his heart is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, when he says this, I am gentle and lowly in heart. We know a lot about his teachings, we know about his doctrine, we know his view of how he fulfilled the Old Testament and on and on, but only here, Orland says, does he tell us of his heart, and when he does, he identifies his heart as gentle and lowly and meek. This is who Christ is, case closed. Now, there's no question about that. Here's the question, is that who we are? Or if we just capitulate to the culture and falsely held up the idea that I just say whatever I think, you know, you know, I just lay it out there, I don't care how people respond. And we put that over, we say that's boldness. But the Bible says in the book of James, it's spiritual immaturity. The Bible says in the book of James that a man who can control his tongue or his words can bring his whole body under subjection to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know what boldness is? 
It's to go against the grain of what's expected. And what's expected in our current culture when it comes to criticism is to give it right back twice as bad as you've received it. And so what boldness requires, gospel-centered boldness, is to respond with gentleness and meekness and humility. Our sinful hearts are naturally pointed against those things. And the words that come out of our mouths, according to Matthew 12, 34, proceed out of the abundance of our hearts. And so if the natural condition of my heart is to respond in a sinful way, to exalt myself, to to not receive uh, criticism or even correction, those things. And guess what? I have to daily, actively be waging war, to be training my heart in the ordinary spiritual discipline so that my heart becomes conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, what you're left with is willpower. And I don't know about you, willpower wears out for me. I've been eating healthy and working out. I've lost about 17 pounds. Very few of you have encouraged me. I just want to share that openly. I'm kidding. And so one of our kids had a little friend spend the night, and Tasha said, I'm going to make cookies. And I said, that's a terrible idea. Where are they? And so the first... The first little endeavor, I had one. I said, oh, that's good. You know, I, I can put the brakes on now, right? Like, I've had one. And this is the honest truth. After they went to bed, I had five more last night. <laughs> that's the truth. And so for me, listen, willpower, oh, it wears out over time. Whether it's cookies or responding in a way that glorifies God in the face of criticism. But here's the good news. That when Christ saved me, he implanted in me the Holy Spirit of God, empowering me to do what I could not do, what I would not do, left to myself, my own resources. And so because this Spirit-filled life is available to me, I can respond to the worst unjustified criticism with meekness and gentleness and humility. I don't have to respond in the flesh. I don't have to tear them right back down. When God saved you, he didn't give you stronger willpower. He gave you himself. I love what Warren Wearsby said. He said, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. The ability to be angry at sin, yet willing to suffer abuse for the sake of Christ. He said, that's not natural. I agree, it's supernatural. And so you and I should be actively involved in having our hearts conform to the image of Christ through the daily, ordinary, mundane, spiritual disciplines because through those, God unleashes his empowering grace and that grace transforms my heart and empowers me to obey when I could not obey and I would not obey left to myself. And so the key is to be training for this criticism, not just trying hard in the moment to keep your mouth shut. Haters are gonna hate, so let's train for that on the front end. And then secondly, let's commit to choose the right weapons. For all of you military history buffs out there, you should love verses 3 through 6 because Paul's using military imagery here to drive his point home. He's reminding us there's always a spiritual battle taking place in our lives. We're waging war against our sinful hearts on the inside and the devil and his army on the outside. There's no question about that. The only question is, when the bullets of criticism come flying your way, which weapons are you going to pick up to defend yourself? 
and all the weapons we could pick up fall into two categories, the flesh or the spirit. Paul's opponents, these super apostles, they're absolutely waging war according to the flesh. All of their boasting of themselves was based on things that are outwardly impressive in the world's sense. Their outward appearance, their eloquent speech, their leadership gifts, and by the evidence, they're able to sway people to their side so quickly after Paul's planting and preaching uh, in that church. And so, and can we just be honest this morning? We can get wrapped up in that as well. We can become very influenced by outwardly impressive people whose gifts far outpace their character, can't we? We see this all the time. Influential, gifted people, leading ministries, have a blowout morally, and within just a few short period of time before the fruit of repentance can even be observed in their life over a long period of time because of their gifts, they're platformed so quickly. That's what's going on here. These people are teaching false doctrine. And they're influencing people. They're they're battling this battle with Paul and the spiritual uh, in the world. They're so impressive. Look at Paul. He's not impressive. His speech, not impressive. But listen, this is not the way of Christ. Listen to Paul's clear words in verse 3. Look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Here's what Paul's saying. I'm not going to respond to their criticism of my outward impressiveness or my lack of gifts by trying to brag about my accomplishments. Oh yeah? You think you're impressive? I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. I did this. I did all this. Paul says, I'm not doing it because that's the wage war in the flesh and outward worldly uh, appearances. He says, I'm not going to respond to them tearing me down by trying to tear them down uh, in return here. Both of those are waging war according to the flesh, responding to criticism by trying to either make yourself look better through boasting or make the other person look less through your criticism right back. That's, listen, that's waging war in the flesh. When I was growing up, <laughs> the when someone was criticizing you, we had a common uh, weapon that we would use, and it was, listen, we, we were waging war according to the flesh. And so when I was growing up, uh, if someone criticized you, embarrassed you, then the most common weapon you'd pick up is to criticize someone's mom. Amen? I got mom jokes for days, right? Anybody want to hear one? Get behind you, Satan. That's my own kid right there. What's wrong with you? No. Someone criticize you, you criticize their mom, right? They embarrass you, you try to embarrass them. What is that? That's waging war uh, in the flesh. And so what weapons should we use when faced with this criticism? How, what does it look like to respond in a way that brings God glory? And now let me say this, I love the language of war that Paul uses here. Look at verses four and five. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey 
Christ. Now, let me zero in on something here that's often misunderstood uh, in this passage. It's the concept of strongholds in verse 4. Strongholds, let me just tell you this, strongholds are not territorial demons on the outside, they are patterns of thought on the inside. If you ever heard anybody teach, and they're a little more charismatic in their theology, sometimes they'll teach about demonic strongholds and those kind of things as if there's some kind of territorial demon on the outside, you know, gaining ground uh, in your life. Listen, the Bible says clearly, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Strongholds are not territorial demons on the outside, they're patterns of thought on the inside. Patterns of thought that contradict the truth of God and capture our loyalties. Now, does Satan battle us in our thought life? Of course he does. The first thing Satan did in the Garden of Eden was try to get Adam and Eve to doubt what God said. When was the response was, surely God did not say. But our own sinful flesh is most often the culprit when it comes to strongholds. Because what do we think? We think we know better than God does. We think we deserve things that God says will destroy us. We're hardwired to think too highly of ourselves. And so let me offer up another phrase you've heard me say often, all right? Listen to this, dial in on this. We do what we do because our heart wants what it wants, and the reason our heart wants what it wants is because we believe what we believe. Let me repeat that. We do what we do because our heart wants what it wants, and our heart wants what it wants because we believe what we believe. That's why Paul's counsel in verse 5 is crucial. Look at verse 5 again. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion. Where do we hold opinions? In our thought life. Raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Clearly, he's talking about what you believe drives what you do. The the word for thought in the Greek, it occurs six times in the New Testament. The word means something more than cognitive or merely intellectual properties. Listen to this. It refers to the mind's settled loyalty. That's why we're trying to take every thought captive. Because when we believe something that's not true, that that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and we begin to meditate on it, and all of a sudden that thought that's not in line with what God's teaching begins to get our settled loyalties in our heart, then we believe what we believe, and then all of a sudden our heart wants what it wants, and then we'll do what we do. He says that's why the battle is to take every thought captive and say, no, that is not true. I will not let that unbiblical thought that thought that raises itself against the knowledge of God, I will not let that have a settled loyalty in my inner man. Listen to one commentator. He said the idea is capturing one's thoughts to obey Christ is bringing down our natural human self-vaunting, being humbled into a desire to exalt Christ, the turning around and reconditioning of the fleshly mindset with which we are all naturally born. Adrian Rogers said this, he said, the reason it's so easy to live in the flesh is because it's what comes natural. And you know what comes natural when criticism gets lobbied your way? It's to hit back even harder, isn't it? You know what's supernatural? To respond 
with truth that is soaked in humility and gentleness and meekness. That's the battle at war here. The battle to destroy the other person and and level it right back to them. Listen, he says you're waging war according to the flesh. The word warfare in verse 4, it literally means to carry on a military campaign. And the According to the passage here, the military campaign is not against the devil. It's not against the other person that criticized you. The military campaign is against your own strongholds of thought that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, according to verse 5. That's why if you say, well, the devil made me do it, that's probably not true. Our sinful flesh makes us respond sinfully to criticism instead of responding in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ. Now, we'll just ask an honest question. Think all that we've taught for the last 25, 26 minutes. And let's just ask an honest question. How in the world do you live that way? How in the world do you respond to harsh, blistering, unjustified criticism. How, who in the world lives this way? How do you live this way? I'm going to tell you, so listen closely, all right? Here it is. Here's how you live this way. You rehearse the gospel. Now, let me openly acknowledge that the answer I just gave you sounds incredibly cliche and not terribly practical. So let me just explain what we mean by rehearsing the gospel when it comes to responding in a way that glorifies God to criticism. Listen, the gospel teaches that I'm approved before God, not based upon what I can accomplish, but what Christ has accomplished on my behalf through his death, burial, and resurrection. And when I understand that, then when somebody criticizes me for something I've done and is critical of my performance in some area, I don't have to lash back out. You know why? Because my identity and my confidence was never in my performance in the first place. It's in what Christ has done on my behalf and what Christ has declared is true about me now that I belong to Him. If you're a super defensive person when it comes to criticism... You, you Listen, you can grit your teeth and go, I'm not, I'm not going to respond that way. I'm not going to be insecure or defensive anymore. Listen, you, you are. Because you're waging war in the flesh. The reason a person's super defensive when it comes to criticism is because they don't fully understand their new identity in, in Christ to the point where they can live out of it. They think their identity is tied back to their performance, and that's why they're crushed by criticism, and they lashed back out. Let me just make this clear this morning. The gospel doesn't just forgive your past. A right understanding of the gospel teaches me in the present. I have a whole brand new identity in Jesus Christ. I have a new power and new promises and new potential through Christ, and therefore, I don't have to respond in the flesh when criticized because what they said about me isn't true because what Christ has declared about me is what's true. Now here's how great this chapter is. It's going to point to two indicators that will help you evaluate whether or not you fully understand your identity in Christ in relation to respond to criticism in a way that glorifies God with meekness and gentleness in Humility, right? So if you want to know what those two indicators are, would you just say amen this morning? 
Good, because I'm going to tell you anyway, all right? When you live with a settled understanding of your new identity in Christ, there's two, two indicators that will be true in your life, all right? I want you to listen to these. Number one, you will avoid the trap of comparison. Look at verse 12. He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. What, what does he mean they're without understanding? He's like, they don't even understand that being in Christ is where our identity is. They think something they do on the outside, their performance, is where their identity is. He said they don't even understand. A person who constantly compares themselves to others is looking for approval and security based on how well they stack up when comparing strengths and weaknesses. That's, why the, that's what they're battling in their thought life. When they receive criticism, you know why they want to lash back out? Because here's what they're afraid of. What they're afraid of is it's true. That's where the battle is in our thought life. They said this, and I'm afraid it's true. And because I believe that, that's got a settled loyalty in my inner man, then what my heart wants is to, is to be, not be less than, and so I'm going to destroy you in my response because I'm really afraid what you said is true. Even if it wasn't loving, it might be true. But a person who understands their identity in Christ, as Paul did, doesn't worry if they're impressive on the outside because their identity and approval comes from the work that Jesus has accomplished and is accomplishing on the inside. And so a person who understands their identity in Christ and rehearses that truth about the gospel, listen, they don't have to compare themselves to other people. You know why? Because it doesn't matter how you measure up because Christ already measured up on my behalf. It doesn't matter how well you're performed because Christ already declared all these things are true about me despite what that person said that was unkind. Indicator number one, you avoid the trap of comparison. Indicator number two, you'll avoid the temptation of bragging. People brag or boast to convince others that they do measure up, that they are worthy of other people's acceptance and approval and admiration. But people who understand their identity in Christ, they don't brag on themselves, they brag on Jesus. You, you know what my sincere hope is every week when we gather together? That when you leave, no one walks out and goes, man, how great was the music today? It was so great. Like, how great was the teaching today? Pastor Chris was great. Pastor Brad was great. Listen, you know what my sincere prayer is? That when you leave today, that everybody's walking out saying, how incredible is Jesus? What a joy to exalt Him in worship. What a joy to draw near to Him by conforming our thoughts to the image of Christ today. And so we don't brag on ourselves. Why? Because our identity is not rooted in what we accomplished anyway. It's rooted in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Look at verse 17 and 18. What's he say? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Do you not realize what he's saying here? I'm just going to tell you, this is in my notes. This is totally free. I've said this to people over the years. I've told all of our pastors this. 
90% of all the counseling I've done over the last 21 years, 90% of it would not be necessary if people understood and lived of their identity in Christ. If people knew more about the gospel than how it forgives my past and how it gets me to heaven in the future, how it reorients my identity in the present. 90% of the counseling I've done would not be necessary. Here's what he's saying. He's saying in Christ, we're freed, listen to this, from the exhausting need to locate our security and our identity and our approval in what we bring to the table. Our own accomplishments, our own righteousness, our own performance, our own abilities, our confidence now lies outside of us and in Jesus Christ. And when you understand that, the pressure's off. You're free. Free from trying to convince others that you measure up. Free from trying to find your identity and comparing yourself with someone else. Free from lashing back out the same nasty way that you receive that criticism. When you understand your identity in Jesus Christ and you rehearse that gospel over and over and over, then finally and fully, you will be free. No longer a slave to other people's approval, admiration, or even their words. You will be free. We're free from trying to convince others that we measure up. And so how does the gospel make a difference in the battle to respond to criticism rightly? You don't have to lash back out at them for making you feel like you're not enough because you're living with a settled confidence that Jesus was more than enough on your behalf and your identity is in him and you're deeply rooted in that truth and not in your performance. And so when someone criticized me, you know what I can say? Probably what you're saying is true. Guess what? Here's the good news. But what Jesus said about me is truer. And I'm living out of that truth. So I don't know about you, but based on that, I would agree and argue that the gospel really is good news, not just for your past, but for the present and for your future. And even better, as the gospel can be received today by all who would repent and believe. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, let me ask you this. Have you repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's the foundation of the gospel, is understanding who Christ is and who you are in relation to Him. And the Bible says that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus Christ gave His life as a ransom for our sins, was buried and rose the third day. So have you received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and a new identity in Him? If you've never done that, then when you leave today, all today will be is a self-help talk, self-improvement. Would you receive Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins? Secondly, for those of you who are saved, I want to ask you a question. What does your response to criticism as a pattern, what does your response to criticism say about your understanding of who you are in Jesus Christ. Does it say that you're still trying to 
measure up? Does it say that you're still trying to live by performance when you've been purchased by grace? Does it say you're still living to prove to others that you're enough when Christ has already declared you His? If that's you today, would you, would you just right now, would you just pray this? Would you say, Lord, give me a greater understanding of the gospel. Help me to live out of that brand new identity in Jesus Christ. God, help me to live not with an arrogance, but with a settled confidence that everything Christ has said about me is true to the point I don't have to respond poorly or sinfully when someone says something that's untrue. God, help me this week. Give me an opportunity to glorify you in the midst of criticism, even this week. To respond with gentleness and meekness and humility, not because their words don't hurt, but because the gospel says they aren't even true. Lord, we're grateful for the gospel. May we never get over it. Amen.